oh, I need to get a job. <laughs> you know, and at 28 years old, I also had this weird kind of thought of like, what do you do in life? What do you seek in life when you've already achieved kind of your childhood dream? You know, most people may never get to their childhood dream of being, you know, a pro athlete or an astronaut. But when you achieve that and you're 28 years old, it's like, well, what do I do now? That's right, folks. You heard him, ex-world tour rider, and now one of the biggest talents in gravel racing, Ian Boswell, joins us today on Bobby and Jens. Well, Ian, um, man, it's it's been a while, but really not that long, because I briefly saw you during a gravel race last year up here in Asheville. That was the Belgian waffle ride. But how you doing, man? Where are you calling from? Yeah, I'm doing well, Bobby. Um, we well, we we texted the other day as well about the uh, the old days of of Nice. But uh, I'm up at my house up in northern Vermont. Um, it felt like spring for a couple of days, but we got some snow again this morning. So I'm calling from my bedroom, which is also my my office. Um, yeah, but it's good to good to be here with both you and Yenzi. We are absolutely excited to have you because, like, you got an interesting life story, and we can't wait to explore it little by little. But let's start at the beginning. How did you get into cycling? Yeah, well, I first uh, I was actually late adopter to learning how to ride a bike. I didn't grow up in this era of strider bikes. I was back when we had training wheels and you learned how to ride your bike sideways, um, just was propped up on one wheel. So uh, both my parents race. My dad did triathlon. My mom did some mountain biking. So I started uh, riding my bike. I think I wasn't until I was seven when I first could ride and then very quickly fell in love with the freedom that it gave me just to get away from my house and explore and ride around the neighborhood. And then I think when I was like eight or nine, I started racing BMX um, just because it was the easiest, you know, kind of entry point into cycling. You know, you're on a, a track and, you know, BMX bikes tend to be the <laughs> easiest bikes to maintain as well with, with no gears. And then when I was, I believe, 11 or 12, I finally could fit on my mom's, um, she had old Olmo steel bike and I was able to drop the seat all the way down and there was a race that I'm sure Bobby did at some point, um, the Cascade Cycling Classic in Bend. And this must have been, goodness, I was 12, so 2001 or something. Um, and I had a little kids race after the pro men's criterium when I jumped on my mom's bike and did that. And from then on, I was pretty hooked on on cycling. And I also, you know, came up through this kind of, you know, golden era of Americans doing well in Europe. So it was pretty easy to be captivated as a as a young boy, you know, riding my bike locally, but we used to always race around the the streets and we had an old winning magazine yellow jersey that my dad, you know, was going to throw away and we used that as our leader jersey for our our tour to Saginaw was the the street I grew up on in Bend, Oregon. So that was our uh yeah, that was our yellow jersey. We had all sorts of different stages around the neighborhood that we used to always dream of one day racing in in the biggest races and yeah, still uh, still riding bikes today and loving it just as much. Well, you kind of called me out there and you really dated me, but I was going to mention this because uh, knowing that you're from Bend, I got to do the, the Cascade Classic back in 1994 with the Chevrolet LA Sheriff team. And I was blown away. I, I, you know, we had host housing. Our host couldn't have been nicer people. The race was amazing. The area was amazing. But it's blown up, right? I mean... I haven't been there since 1994, 
when when did you leave and when was the last time that you were back there? Yeah, well, my my mom and um, sister still live in Bend. My dad moved out. My older brother moved out. My younger brother moved out. Um, so when you were, I looked this up the other day, actually, when in 91, when I was born, Ben was 26,000 people. So in 94, it must have been, I don't know, 30,000 people. And I think last the last census was like well over 100,000 people. So it's it has, like you said, it has blown up. Um, I was there last summer visiting my mom and some family. And, you know, it's still a great place to, to visit and to ride, but it's a very different place than, you know, where I grew up or the place that you experienced in 94. Don't uh, or didn't Chris Horner live there for a while, and now Kristen Armstrong as well, I believe. There's is more than one or two cyclists living there, right? So it must be great riding up there. Yeah, there is great riding, and you know it's up at not say altitude. I think it's like a thousand meters, like thirty five hundred feet um, around there. But um, pretty mild winters. You know, it's high and dry, kind of like Colorado. Not a ton of roads, but you know, really good mountain biking. But a lot of triathletes, and and yeah, funny. Um, throughout, I guess, the majority of my career, Horner only lived about a mile away from my mom. Um, and we never, I've never once ridden with the guy. I've been in races with him. You know, I'd text him when I was home. I'm like, hey, let's go for a ride. And he would respond like, oh, I'm going out to ride motorcycles or I'm doing whatever Horner does. But um, I never actually did a did a training ride with him. And I guess, you know, by the time I was living in Europe, he was spending more time in the US. And when you know, I was kind of living there full time through high school. He was, um, you know, he was off in Europe doing his thing. So we didn't really overlap, even though, you know, we were in town at similar times. We were always kind of doing different things. That's crazy because uh, Chris Horner actually used to live in Nice back way back. So that was uh, we moved there in 97. I think he lived there from 97 to 99. And all he did was ride his bike like an easy day would be like five hours. So I rarely yeah. rode, rode with him either because I'm like, no, I don't want to go for an eight-hour training ride today. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I was I came from a generation that was so blessed. You mentioned, we mentioned one of the, the great races, but there were so many other races that were just iconic. Um, the Casper Classic, Tour of Gila, um, Redlands, which I think is still going on. I mean, they, it was coast to coast. And you, you could actually pick which races you wanted to, to do. Was that the same when you were growing up or did you have to use the national team to get a little bit more um, racing exposure and especially chances to race over in Europe? Yeah, I mean, this is actually something I've thought in a lot about recently, kind of when I look at, you know, whether young athletes reach out to me like, hey, how did you make it to, you know, the world tour and, you know, to these bigger teams? Um, and I feel like I kind of came in at the tail end of this really golden window of American domestic American racing. You know, you think from when you kind of started in, you know, 94 up until probably late, like 2010, 2011, you know, you had six or seven pretty prominent, you know, domestic American teams. You know, you think you had Bissell and Kelly Benefits and Jelly Belly. Um, and you said you had this awesome NRC race calendar. You had riders here racing domestically who were making, you know, livable wages just racing in the U.S., and I kind of was like the tail end of that. Um, and I think it's it's kind of sad to see because, you know, like you said, there were all these, you know, amazing races domestically and riders could then go to Europe. So I was kind of splitting those generations of kind of what the situation is now versus what it was when you were coming up through where I was racing in the U.S. a little bit, but also racing with the national team over in Europe. Um, you know, and it's interesting to see this boom of gravel racing now, which I'm sure we'll get into, but it's... Uh, 
you know, it has been interesting just to see kind of the, the flow and change of racing in the U S because, you know, cascade through my whole childhood, you know, the downtown criterium, there would be four rows deep of people. And it was just, it was a community event. You know, there was, you know, pro racers from all over the U S all over the world, you know, there were a lot of international riders come into the U S at those times. And I'm sure Yenzi, you probably came and did Redlands at some point. And then obviously that kind of led to some of the bigger races like tour of California and tour of Georgia, um, tour of Utah, so as someone who, uh, tour of yeah. Colorado. I mean, oh gosh, there were so many great races and it's just tour of Missouri. There's another one. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and you know, I am probably a bigger cycling fan now than I was when I was actually racing, just following the sport and watching races. Um, so it's kind of sad to see that there's not that depth of, you know, big American, you know, stage races anymore. Um, and it's changed things, you know, clearly in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some young American riders doing great in Europe, but the path to get there has definitely changed from, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, it seems like it's uh, less American bike professionals, but all of them are very, very good. So only like the best, best gonna make it these days. It is definitely gotten a lot harder. Um, one of my questions was, I actually wanted to ask them later, but... To restart that American cycling scene, if anybody offers you a job as a technical advisor, as a director for a new tour of Vermont, would you ever take that or would you go, hey, listen, I'm happy where I am now um, and I love my gravel, I love my family, I don't want any stress with that? Yeah, no, it's it's interesting question. Um, you know, my wife and I do organize a very small gravel ride um, here in Peacham, which is not a, not a race, but you know, one thing that maybe interests me more than organizing a, I mean, I always think about like, you know, how cool it would be to organize a big, you know, whether it's a new England stage race or, you know, West coast stage race. Um, but equally, you know, directing a team is something I've always loved. And it, and it's funny. And maybe both of you noticed this stepping away from racing, but still watching racing. I feel like I know so much more now and I observe so much more. And I had this similar experience when I was in high school, I lived in Belgium and, you know, I was immersed in this French speaking school and I didn't learn French and I came home and took a break from French. And then I went back and I spoke French, you know, not perfectly, but it's like sometimes like a training block, you need a rest and then you return to it and you're actually better than you were. And watching racing now, it's funny how like all these lessons I've learned over the years, you know, racing with guys like Bernie Eisel and stuff, I watch a race now and I'm like, why aren't they doing this? And I'm, it's easy to armchair quarterback and, you know, <laughs> think, you know, what's going wrong or right. But, um, you know, it is funny how when you kind of take a step back, sometimes you actually see things in a different, a different perspective. And it's been, it's been interesting to just have that observation and see, you know, I guess it's also always easier to tell someone what to do than to try to do it yourself. But, um, no, I, I would, I would enjoy, you know, at least playing and or giving a hand at, you know, directing or kind of organizing a team just because it's uh, especially some younger riders you know because i feel like all of us have so much experience and you know it's kind of hard to get that experience out if you're not you know physically there and talking to people and showing them how to do it you know in a race or post-race so d with listening to what you just said over here in the u.s you know grand fondo participation is massive Gravel participation and races is massive. And the road scene is dwindling, to say the least. When will we or will we soon see a young rider from the gravel scene 
make the transition over to the world tour? Because I've done some of these races, that one that I did with you, I mean, I lined up on the front line with you and I think that was the last I saw of you because you guys hit it up that first climb and I was like, nope, not suffering like that anymore. But like there, there's some really talented kids that right now are doing criteriums and gravel racing because that's all we have. But when will we see that first athlete that switches from gravel to the world tour and is successful in the world tour on the road. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that really is only a matter of time. And I think one of the most unique things about the growth of, you know, kind of fondos and gravel in the U S is that it's very, it's very easy access point for people to get into, you know, when I've made this analogy before, if you want to start road racing, you start off as a cat five and it might take years to become a cat one. You might be the strongest person in every category, but there's a long process by which you have to kind of improve and in gravel racing, of course, the technique and the technical aspects are similar, but very different than road, especially the the group dynamics. Um, but you're instantly able to show how strong you are. You know, you can never have done Unbound before, never done BWR and have basic understanding of, you know, drafting and still win the race. Whereas if you're doing your first road race, you're going to be in the Cat 5s and it's going to take a couple of years to upgrade to a Cat 1 or a Pro. Um but it is interesting. I just did a race down in North Carolina two weekends ago and it was a very flat course. And so there's a lot of road tactics. And I just realized how little tactical sense everyone else in the group had because they all came from mountain biking or cyclocross and, you know, physically they're super strong, but I'm like, oh man, like they have no idea what's going on with, you know, the crosswind or came down to a sprint, you know, positioning. Um, and especially if athletes are trying to go to Europe, you know, they need, I mean, both of you know super well you need that experience of racing in a bunch drafting crosswinds you know the the tactics and the sense of just where you are in the group is so important and i think as gravel racing becomes more you know kind of high profile and the field becomes deeper those tactics will be learned but you know there's really nothing better than just going to belgium and jumping in the deep end for a bunch of cremesses and figuring it out pretty quickly that's um just listen to you what you just said um gravel racing i think you get very very strong but you probably do not need much explosivity or explosive power because it's it's like a big long um elimination race isn't it i mean i only did once um back in the day sturdy cancer i believe now it's unbound correct so i did it once and yeah. it seemed like All you needed is the biggest engine on the planet, like super diesel power that would make you win the race. Is that true or did that change in the last years? Yeah, well, you would have been great at it in your prime years. You just would have ridden everyone off your wheel. Um, I mean, it, it, it tends to be that way where the race happens behind you rather than ahead of you. You know, people get dropped rather than attack. And, you know, the race is becoming and the whole scene is becoming more... You know, there's more depth and, you know, just more horsepower, which I think in time will make it more tactical and more, you know, attacks and whatnot. Um, but something like you said, Unbound, that's, you know, 200 miles. What is that? 350K or something. Um, you know, it really is just you're kind of racing yourself for 95% of the race. You know, it's very little is it worrying about everyone else. It's worrying about, you know, fueling, staying cool, looking after your equipment, you know, not flatting. Um so you do build these huge engines, which, you know, predominantly is kind of how 
a lot of these American writers have also gotten to Europe. You know, you look at myself and Dombrowski, or, you know, even look at, you know, Quinn Simmons or McNulty, you know, they're these big engines and it seems pretty traditional in the US that, you know, we produce these pro cyclists that have huge engines and then if they become successful, it's really a matter of like, can they then figure out the bike racing side of it? You know, the tactics, the, you know, positioning, um, because we, we definitely have and have had a long streak of big motors, but that doesn't always translate to big victories on the road. But as gravel becomes, you know, a bit deeper, hopefully that, you know, more of those skills can be learned and, and transferred over to, to road racing, which as you said, is, is much more punchy and aggressive than, than gravel racing, but we may see more punch in, in the coming years. Yeah, you, you talk about punch, but that's how you won Unbound. And then the the race that you mentioned last week in North Carolina, you had to win that in a sprint too, right? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I, Jens, you probably raced with Lawrence Tandy. I'm like, no, I mean, there's probably 4,000 people on the start line of Unbound and probably two people I could have beaten, one being Lawrence and one maybe being Pete Staten. Uh, myself, you, know, you, or, you throw me in there maybe, a, yeah. any, any day, any day. Yeah. Um, yeah, not not really sprinting against sprinters. And I think also, you know, sprinting after 10 hours is a bit different than sprinting after, you know, you know, 45 miles or something. I think it's it's really more about who's fresher than who has a better sprint. Um, yeah, ironic that I uh, have found myself, that's I guess I've done a total of like eight gravel events and that's the third time I found myself in a sprint, which is not a situation I ever found myself in on the road and did not expect to find in, in gravel racing. Well, talking about a situation you may not have found yourself in, um, back in 2012, you wrote me an email and it was um, kind of saying, kind of want to come to Sky. And Joe Dombrowski was coming and, and the team was like super excited to have you. And unfortunately, our, our paths did not cross for very long. Um, because I had to leave the team, um, after Bradley won the tour due to the zero tolerance policy, but I always kind of kept an eye on you, even if it was just in passing on the, on the road when you were riding for sky. Um, tell us a little bit about your experience there. And you mentioned earlier about being an armchair quarterback, knowing now, knowing what you know now, what would you have told your younger self? especially that first year or two at Sky um, and then moving forward. Yeah, well, that was, um, you know, good times back then. I mean, obviously bummed that, you know, Joe and I didn't get to work with you, but we still we still saw each other around Nice here and there. But um, yeah, I mean, I have a lot of perspective on those first couple of years at, at Team Sky, you know, for, and I think I made a big mistake early on in my career by putting so much expectation on making it to that team that I didn't really assess what my goal was beyond making it to that team. You know, it, you know, throughout your junior career and under 23, you're always focused on, you know, of course, like nationals and the world championships and tour de l'avenir, but there's always this overarching goal of, I want to be in the world tour. And so I made it to the world tour and I never really reevaluated what my long-term goals were. And it wasn't until my third year on the team that I kind of like made this realization, like, oh geez, like I've been driven to get to this level because I've, you know, had this long-term goal. And so I, I sat down with Brailsford and kind of restructured kind of my my both short-term and long-term goals. Um, but I learned a lot from that team and not just, you know, racing and, you know, nutrition and tactics and, you know, sports science, but just even how I operate today. And I think, you know, Bobby, you, you know, really thrived in that environment because it was so 
organized and, and driven and you're surrounded by such motivated people that, you know, once you applied yourself, like it became so easy to just work hard. You know, I, funny enough, I have my own podcast and I just spoke to Fran Miller and she's outside the cycling industry now, but, you know, working in, in fashion and she's like, she just brought all the same techniques from that team into what she's doing now, you know, just getting people to buy into to what you're doing. So it doesn't feel like work, you know, it's your, it's your family, it's your friends. Like you want to be there at training camp. Um, you know, it really was just such a impactful time on my life, both, you know, professionally, just what I learned, but I think even more so stuff that I've learned off the bike and just how to, you know, how to present myself, how to look after myself, you know, how to really apply yourself and, and go two feet in, you know, to a project or, you know, your career. So later then you moved to Kadusha after five years at Team Sky. Why the change? You wanted to try something new or felt like, okay, uh, I used this road for five years. I, I, I need a change or, and how did that uh, transition go? Because Kadusha probably was quite different than Team Sky or Team Ineos Grenadiers, right? Yeah, I mean, the two teams couldn't be more different. Um, you know, I had spent, like I said, I'd spent five years at Team Sky. I'd, you know, taken a lot from the team. I learned a lot. Um, but I got to the point kind of in the, in the pecking order within the team as well, where it was like, you know, I really, my my goal that I, you know, set out after a couple of years at Sky is like, I need and I want to make the Tour de France team. And the more time I spent at, at Sky, which they were called at the time, um, it became harder and harder to make that tour squad. You know, I did the the tour or the Giro with them once. I'd done two Vueltas, um, but that tour team was just so elusive. And, you know, it was, it, you know, and it oftentimes kept back, you know, coming back to like, oh, we well, don't have experience at the tour. It's like, well, I need experience. I can't get experience without actually being at the tour. Um, and just with the the expectation of the team, you know, having, you know, Garen Thomas and Froomey and, you know, later Bernal, it was just so hard to kind of make that like top, you know, eight riders, you know, you could be the 10th best rider on the team, but you're not going to make that, you know, that tour team. So I decided to, to leave the team and go to Katusha. Um, yeah, I was the only, only American rider over there. And it was a real mix of riders at the time. We just signed the same year. Um, Marcel Kittel was on the team, you know, so there was this kind of German and, you know, sprinter influence with Rick Zobel and Niels Pollitt. Um, but they also had Ilner Zakarin, who was the the GC rider, and Kier Zalowski was at the team, and Simon Spielock. Um, so it was a really, you know, it's all people I'd raced with and I'd known, you know, and thankfully I'd spent five years at Sky. So I had was able to look after myself by the time I went to Katusha. I think if I was a young rider and I went there, I would have been lost because they, you know, there wasn't the the sense of support and structure that that happened at, at Team Sky. Um, but I really enjoyed my time there because I was able to kind of, you know, step back, do my thing. I'd kind of known what had worked for me. Um, and I was able to ride the tour in, in 2018 with, with Zacharin and, you know, he didn't win. Um, he finished ninth and, and Garrett Thomas won the race, but it was, you know, definitely reached that goal of just making it, you know, making a tour squad and, you know, experiencing what the Tour de France is all about. And I know both of you, you know, won stages and had, you know, podium finishes. So you experienced it a little bit more, but for me, it was, it was just an awesome time to be able to, you know, make this childhood dream come true of, of riding the tour. If you want to get more out of your free time, sign up to Outside Plus. For less than a dollar a week, you can get six print and digital issues of Peloton Magazine, exclusive membership content from Bellenews.com, access all the premium content from the whole outside family, including yoga journal, backpacker, ski, outside magazine, 
and many others. And that's not all. There are discounts of the hottest gear and biggest events, access to Gaia, GPS, and trail forks, as well as virtual health and fitness courses. It's $350 of value in one $99 annual subscription. But if you head to valuenews.com forward slash outside plus and enter BJPOD25, all one word, lowercase, at checkout, you will receive our special 25% discount and make a good deal. Great. And now back to our chat with Ian. And now I kind of want to move to, uh, I guess, the most uncomfortable for me to ask, but I think the most interesting and hopefully informative thing for our listeners. Would you mind if we, we spoke about the crash that you had in Torino Adriatico in 2019? Because obviously that crash and the ramifications of that crash put you on a totally different path. I mean, you would still be racing on the road right now. You'd still be, you'd probably be in your third or fourth or fifth Tour de France by now. But can you please tell us what transpired there? Not only, you know, we know you crashed and had a concussion, but, you know, those next couple months, those, you know, that, that quote unquote recovery period and how you were able to, to transition from one day being a pro that's doing the the Tour de France to a few months later, I remember texting you and it just didn't seem like it was getting getting better. Can you give us a little bit more information on on, on that whole? Yeah, yeah. Well, so yeah, I did have a crash in, I guess, what, Torino's usually early March 2019. Um, you know, I, I had a concussion, you know, I'd had multiple concussions before. And I, you know, like any cyclist, you assume you're going to be, you're going to be out for a couple of days and, you know, you'll ride the train and you'll be back and I'll be back in time for, you know, Pays Vasco or Catalonia. Um, but the symptom just kept kind of lingering on and on and I wasn't getting better. So eventually I, you know, left Nice, came back to the U.S. and, you know, the team at the time I was with Katusha, you know, they gave me a lot of support, like, Hey, you know, do what you need to look after yourself. Um, it was also hard being, you know, an American in Europe trying to navigate the the medical system there is very affordable. Um, but I was kind of, you know, I was running back and forth to Monaco and different hospitals trying to find specialists. So eventually I came back to the US and started seeing some folks at, at Dartmouth Hitchcock and, you know, I was getting better and, you know, this was, you know, I kept kind of putting these timelines on things. Oh, I'll be back for a tour of California and if I have a good race there, then I can ride the tour. And that timeline just kept kind of getting pushed back and pushed back and, you know, during that period, I also was speaking with a, a psychiatrist, psychologist, I don't know, someone that just helps you work on your emotions and kind of digest what's going on. And, um, you know, throughout that summer, I realized I'm probably not going to get back to racing this year. I was on a contract year. So then it became time to decide, you know, what am I going to do next? Am I going to try to, you know, Katusha was also having difficulties financially and that was the last year of that team. So staying there wasn't an option. Um, so then just kind of putting myself back in that mindset of knowing what it's like to be a professional cyclist, you know, having spent, I guess at that point, eight years or seven and a half years living in Nice, um, I knew what I was signing up for if I signed another contract and, you know, just through the recovery process. And I think time away from the sport, I realized that I still loved riding my bike so much and having seen a couple of friends and colleagues retire, you know, years prior and they just really, 
didn't enjoy riding their bike anymore. They didn't enjoy the sport. And I still love the sport so much. And it kind of became a, an opportunity really, cause I could have gone back and raced in the, you know, professional ranks. Um, but like, Hey, you know what? Like I've accomplished a lot. Like my health is super important. You know, I was getting married and you know, by that time I was still young, I was 28. Um, but for whatever reason, I just came to this decision, like, Hey, you know, I need to look after my health. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, still, you know, going to be able to, to ride my bike in the long term. Um, and yeah, I, I don't really fully grasp how I came to the, to the conclusion, but it kind of just hit me one day and I said, Hey, you know what? Like this chapter of my life is, has closed. I got to live and I, I guess I enjoyed what I did so much, um, that I could kind of draw the curtain on it and still look back with like fun memories and still friends and realize I still loved it as well. And I guess, you know, that was the same summer that Thomas was second in the tour and that probably egged on my thought a little bit as well of like, there's no end to the world of being a professional athlete. You know, the year before G had won the tour and the following year he was second, which is still an awesome result. And I, I was texting back and forth with him and he was just so distraught that he didn't win again. You know, and like, I just realized like you get in this cycle of chasing and chasing. If you win one tour, can you win two? Can you win five? And I was just like, you know, so what was my realistic goal of returning to the professional ranks? You know, I'd done all three grand tours. I'd done, you know, all the big classics I wanted to do. I knew my ability as well. I wasn't going to win the tour. Of course, I could have chased, you know, some stages at, you know, whether Paris or some other races. But does that just cause you to chase more and more? And, you know, I've never been a super, you know, person with like a lot of like, you know, kind of these abstract thoughts, but it kind of just dawned on me like, Hey, I've, I've been chasing this a long time and I've achieved a lot. And just to be content with what I had achieved rather than trying to, you know, go back and do it all again for, you know, really, I'd, I'd already proven to myself that I could do it and I could make it to that level. And I was able to make, you know, the tour squad, you know, what did I have to go back to prove? Um, of course, being a pro athlete and I miss that lifestyle now, just, you know, being your own boss. But, um, I, I guess I was really just able to come to terms with the fact that, Hey, you know, it's time for time for something else. And yeah, I find myself in a weird situation now where I'm still racing my bike, which I didn't expect. But, um, you know, like I said, I, I love the sport and I still love watching the sport and speaking to my friends who are, who are still there. It's, you know, have the utmost admiration and respect for those guys. Cause it is a hard sport that just gets harder and harder every year at that, at that high level. So this, uh, transition, transition period took a while About two months after your crash, you did get married, correct, in the U.S. And yes, so did, did um, yeah. who helped you in these? I mean, you must have periods where you had a pretty dark mind, I suppose. Um, wh who helped you? Friends, uh, your parents, your wife? Um, who would you talk to when you go, look, I don't know if I should go or if I should stop or if I should keep going. Uh, who, who do you talk to? Who helped you there in, in this situation? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And I, I asked a lot of people, um, you know, my, my mom, my, my wife, my dad, you know, friends. Um, and I got to this point where I kind of wanted everyone else to make the decision for me because I didn't want to, you know, if you have someone else make the decision, it's like, oh, you, I told you I shouldn't have stopped or, you know, I crashed again. Oh, I, I should have stopped when I had the chance. Um, but everyone around me did a really good job of making sure that I made the decision for myself. And like I said, I, I worked with a, with a therapist just to kind of talk about how I was feeling and, you know, really kind of going down the path and the both options of continuing to race or not continuing to race and being able to make that decision myself ultimately, um, which I was able to, which was great. But, you know, having those people around you who, you know, 
see you and love you for who you are and not just for, for an athlete. Um, you know, that was one of the hardest things I had in, in niece Bobby was I went and saw two different neurologists and, and one was like, you know, I don't think you should go back to racing. Like you've, you've had, you know, you've hit your head six times. There's some, like, there was some internal bleeding from one of them. Like you should probably stop. And the other neurologist I saw was like, Oh, I'm going to get you back in time for the tour de France. Like you got to be on TV for the tour. And I was like, okay, like I, I need to look after my health, you know, beyond just looking after, you know, my, my sporting career. Um, you know, just kind of gathering all the information from, you know, doctors, friends, family, and then making that decision myself, which was, you know, hard to make myself because I had to kind of like face, you know, the, the consequences of, you know, either returning or not. But, um, yeah, I think getting to that point where I could make my own decision was was super beneficial. Can I just add another question? Um, I had a pretty bad crash myself, 2009, with like a little blood clock in my brain and probably a concussion as well. Had to take some time off. Um, and then, yeah, the question is, what do I do after this, right? My wife went, look, I, you can imagine that I would like you to stop, but I can see it's still in you. So if you want to keep going, keep going. Um, a reason for me also to keep going was simply I had five or six kids to feed at the time. Did it ever cross your mind? Hey, how am I going to... I mean, life is life, right? And somebody got to put the butter on the bread and the steak in the fridge. Did that ever put pressure on you? Did you were like, oh, where I'm going to live? How I'm going to live? How I'm going to earn money? Or did you go, nah, that is not important. My health is the one and only concern for me. Yeah, well, you know, the first kind of question of that is I still loved riding my bike in that whole period, you know, following the crash and just through that, you know, kind of spring and summer when I wasn't able to ride, both myself and my wife saw how miserable I was if I couldn't ride my bike or if I couldn't exercise. You know, I think for all of us, it's such an outlet to just express yourself and to have that time alone. Um, so I knew that regardless of what I did, I needed to make sure I was still healthy enough to ride my bike. But yeah, the question very quickly came of, Oh, I need to get a job. Um, you know, and at 28 years old, I also had this weird kind of thought of like, what do you do in life? What do you seek in life when you've already achieved kind of your childhood dream? You know, most people may never get to their childhood dream of being, you know, a pro athlete or an astronaut. But when you achieve that and you're 28 years old, it's like, well, what do I do now? I don't have a college degree. You know, I'd never worked like a, you know, manual labor job. Um, but, you know, I guess I was confident knowing that, you know, I would be able to find find something. Um, and I'd made some really good connections and relationships with different, you know, people in the industry while I was racing. And, and I actually picked up a job um, with Wahoo Fitness the the day I, well, it started the day I left my, well, my contract ended with Katusha. Um, but it is a scary thing. And, you know, it's something that I've tried to encourage some of the other younger riders and especially the ones I know in Nice um, now is like, hey, you know, I don't want people to think too much about what they're going to do afterwards because it, it's a slippery slope. Um, but you spend a lot of time just sitting around, especially now I'm sure they're on TikTok or Instagram with their feet up on the couch, you know, taking a class here or there just to find out at least what you're interested in. You don't even have to be working towards a degree, but just to have interest outside of cycling, I think is a, an important thing just to kind of know what you, you know, at least to guide you what you want to do next because 99% of riders in the world tour are going to have to get a job after, after their career is over, you know, it's the, the lucky few that can hang up their wheels and hang out on the beach. There's no doubt about it. You're speaking like uh, somebody our age instead of, you know, tender age of what, 31 right now. But, you know, thank you for sharing that. Concussions in every sport is is a huge thing. And I'm just, you know, very happy for you 
that you had the support around. I mean, obviously you had to do your fair share of grunt work to to make it happen. But, you know, look where you are now. You're you're a husband, you're a father, you're a a working man, you're a gravel stud. And I know we're le- running a little bit low on time, but I got to get back to gravel because it it's on the tips of everyone's tongue. You know, here in Greenville, we we're always looking for an excuse to go out and do it. Um, one of our, our female friends recently got a, um, gravel bike and she's texting me how excited she is. She's going to go to a gravel camp. She's doing this, that, the other thing, but the use, you know, when, when I started hearing about gravel, I was like, I'm never going to do a race, but then I got talked into doing a race and beforehand I did a lot of like, Hey, you know, what is this world like? Because, you know, as a road rider, back in the day when mountain biking was taking off, like those worlds just did not mesh, right? Like you were a roadie or a mountain biker. And I'm like, wait a second, I'm 40. Well, this was a couple of years ago. So I was in my late forties and I said to myself, self, would you want to be racing against you? You know, when you're a young 21 year old kid, you know, racing gravel. And then um, my friend was just like, listen, this is nothing to do with that. You know, the the world of gravel is just kind of making itself as they go right now. There's no real, you know, dress code. There's no real, you know, this, you know, all the protocols that we had. And I kind of got the impression that it was just a super chilled, relaxed, you know, event or entire scene. Well, let me tell you, folks, um, these guys and gals on gravel bikes can still hit it. I mean, hit it hard. So I was like, man, this is like, when did, when did, I heard gravel racing was supposed to be mellow. It's kind of like a criterium here. You know, you got to be on it. You got to be in the sectors. You got to be thinking about your fueling and you got to be thinking about your position. But okay, so that's my little take on the gravel world. And I've said in the past, and I'll admit again, you know, I'm a cat five gravel guy, like participation and pleasure over placing and pain, which is obviously something that you have to deal with. But the UCI just recently announced that they're going to do a worldwide gravel calendar. And when I looked at where these races were, I was like, wait a second, this is not the privateer lifestyle. This is not the the group of friends going together to a race in a in a conversion van, which are amazing, by the way. Like, put that on my list of things I want to buy before I before I kick the bucket. But like, it was kind of the scene, right? Like, you drove and you camped and you raced and then you had a taco and some beer and then moved on to the next one. But with this worldwide series being in 12, you know, in so many different countries, I think there's 12 events in, I don't, I think 10 countries. Does this fit into gravel as you see it or as you've learned it? Because you're, you're a converted roadie, newbie gravel guy. I mean, you are one of the best in the world, but does this pique your interest at all or what what's going on here? What does the UCI have in store for the gravel scene? Well, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you're you completely right on saying that, you know, when I first heard about gravel too, I was like, oh, like I know Ted King had done it and, you know, Pete was going to do it, but it's it's grown a lot even since, 
you know, 2015 to now, it's, it's a different world. You know, people are making careers out of it. Um, you know, we're seeing more riders come over from the road, you know, Keel Ryan this year and Alex Howes and, you know, there's obviously, you know, Lawrence Tandam and all these riders, you know, I guess Nathan Haas this year is coming to do gravel. Um, and we'd spoken earlier about, you know, the, the demise of, I guess, American road racing. And, you know, part of that I think is due to the fact that, you know, racing in Europe and the Tour de France and, you know, Paris-Nice, these are long established races and they work really well in Europe. And for the longest time we've tried to copy, you know, Hey, the Tour de France works in France. Let's make the Tour of California in California, which worked for a while, but you know, over the years you did see just, you go to the same towns and there's less fans because the race has already come through. But with gravel and the U S tends to have a very participatory fan base, you know, when you're in, I'm sure Jens, you see in Germany, a lot of the people who watch the tour might not even be cyclists. You know, they might ride their bike in, you know, a couple of weeks a year and that's pretty much it. But in the U S a lot of people who are watching professional road racing are also cyclists themselves. And so all of a sudden with gravel, you know, they had the, opportunity to not only ride with their, you know, kind of their heroes or their, you know, their professionals, but they're on the start line with them. They're racing with them. They're hanging out with them. And so we've, I'll not say we, the U.S. gravel scene has been able to create this really cool dynamic of, as you said, Bobby, you know, people kind of on this traveling circus almost, and they're, you know, having fun and they're racing hard, but there's still this, you know, participatory aspect and there's this communal aspect and you're going to these, you know, funky towns in the middle of Kansas or, you know, Canuga in, in North Carolina. Um, and it, it's very uniquely kind of, it fits American roads and culture and the fan base, you know, everyone's able to participate. So with the growth of this globally, I mean, it hasn't happened yet with the UCI and we don't really know what it's going to look like. Um, does it interest me? I will say just off the top of my head, no, <laughs> not really. You know, I, I turned in my professional cycling license and, you know, I feel like figured that was the last time I was going to need a license to do any sort of bike event. Um, but I don't, I'm not against it in the sense that, you know, it's cool. I, I mean, if more people are on bikes around the world, that's awesome. And, you know, I am skeptical if the UCI's platform is the best way to get more people on bikes because you're catering to people who are just trying to be competitive. You know, there's the whole thing is a series leading towards the world championships. And, you know, my wife, she has a bike, she rides bikes. She doesn't really do events, but she's not, if she's going to sign up for an event, she's not going to sign up for a world championship qualifier UCI event. She's going to sign up for the event down the road. That's fun. And it's, you know, casual and they might not even be timing or, you know, there's just timed segments. Um, but does it fit a unique segment of the sport? Yes. And, you know, could you start seeing maybe some crossover of, you know, Alaphilippe and I don't know, someone, I'm trying to think of someone else from the Volk world. Volk good on, you know, Roman Bardet. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reality is, and I'm well aware of this, if those riders started coming to these gravel events, like we would get our, we would get smoked. You know, if, if Vanderpool and Van Aert came to Unbound, like, I don't care if it's 10 hours, like the race would be on a different, a different level. Um, but you know, we could, we could see more kind of crossover here in the future. And that is one of the cool things about, you know, gravel cycling, as you mentioned, Bobby, is that it, it is such a mix of riders. You know, I grew up very similar to, you know, you, I was a road rider and like, you know, I would go ride a mountain bike, but I didn't wear baggies and I rode my road kit on mountain bike trails and all my buddies who were mountain bikers are like, oh, you're such a roadie. And that's the cool thing about gravel is everyone's just on bikes. You know, there's people in jean shorts, there's people in speed suits, there's people on, you know, have bar bags and there's people that have deep dish carbon wheels and everyone's there 
together and there's not really this, you know, culture of like, oh, you're this or you're that. It's like, we're all just riding bicycles, um, which is cool to see, but um, we'll see how this UCI thing plays out. Um, you know, I've, I've pitched some ideas of like, I think it'd be cool to kind of pin some of the best road riders against some of the best gravel racers. You know, it'd be cool to have like a three up kind of team race, you know, myself, you know, Colin Strickland and Pete Stetna against, you know, I don't know, three riders from AG2R because we're both kind of out of our elements. You know, you have road tactics because you have three team members, but you're off road. So the road riders are a little bit, um, you know, out of their element, but I don't sit on the UCI board of directors. So they're not going to listen to my opinion at this point in time. So um, would you then ever consider to travel to Europe or to whatever, Argentina or South Africa for racing? Or you go, nah, look, I got kids, my family here, and I enjoy the American circuit. There's enough racing for me. I mean, these races are hard. It's not that you do one on Sunday, one on Wednesday, and then the next one on Sunday. I mean, these races, we talk like 10-hour events. You need some time to recover from it. So would you ever go, yeah, I race anywhere there's a race? Or you go, hey, look, I rather prefer to stay in the U.S. Yeah, well, that's kind of the, the cool thing about, I guess, at least my position now, and I think a lot of the other people who are doing this, is you get to choose which races you want to do. And for the first time in my life, you know, I get to choose the races that I go to. When you're racing on a professional team, you're oftentimes told, sometimes two days before the race, that, hey, sorry, like we have a rider crash out of Noker course, you're going up to Belgium. It's like, well, wait, I was in a training camp. <laughs> you know, why am I going to this race? Um so, you know, I get to choose the races I want to go to now. And I did go to East Africa last year and did a race in Kenya. And I've been speaking to Lawrence Tendam about potentially going to a, a race in Belgium this July. I think it's called Flanders Gravel. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's what it's called. Um, which is cool. You know, I get to choose to go to these events you know, because I work full time, because I have a family and, you know, we've got a little farm here. It's like, I can pick seven or eight races throughout the year and that's plenty for me. I don't need to be racing 30 days a year. You know, there are people, you know, Pete Stetna, he'll probably do 35, 40 races this year, but he's just racing, you know, his, his job all is tied to, you know, going to events, traveling. He was in Colombia. I'm sure he's going to be going to Iceland, maybe Europe. Um, so you kind of get a like, pick your own path. You know, people can kind of choose what they want to do and you can supplement work on the side if you need to, or if you want to, you know, make it, uh, you know, 300 days on the road, you can, you can do that if you wanted to. And as Bobby was saying, a lot of these riders in the U S with these vans kind of just pack it up in the early, you know, early spring and come back in the winter time. And they've just been driving around going to races all year. I tell you, Ian, it, you know, this was fantastic catching up with you. Um, just for our listeners, I think that Ian was the first guest that we had that actually came into the waiting room early. And I was about to say something, but then Ian, what what did you say to me when uh, when I complimented you for for being early? Well, it was one of the I think one of the first things you told me at at uh, you know before I joined Team Sky is that you know if you're early you're on time, if you're on time you're late, and if you're late you're unprofessional. And it's something that that has really stuck with me through, you know since you told me that and I'm I'm very prompt. I uh set my clocks in my car, you know, 5 to 10 minutes ahead. Um I don't know how you ever worked with Larry Warbass cuz I've never met someone as late as him. And he wouldn't be ashamed if I shared that, but yeah, he's uh he was always late for every time we met for a ride in Nice. Yeah, but that's when you had to auto adjust for that person. With you especially now knowing that you know that I would be I would set if it was eight o'clock eight o'clock 
But if it was someone like Larry or George Hincapie, well, George would probably, you'd have to put in a good 45 minutes. Larry, maybe 15, 20. But um, no, it's, it, it, was, it was great catching up with you. All the best with what you're doing with Gravel. You know, your, your farm up there with, with Wahoo. I know that's a huge, exciting venture for you. And man, just thanks for showing a, an old guy some new tricks with you coming into this gravel world from the road scene and, and really in, enjoying yourself. That's what, that's what I can really see the difference when, when I saw you at Team Sky and Nice. It always seemed like you had a, a stress or a plan. But when I lined up next to you at the Belgian Waffle Ride, I was blown away how relaxed you were. And to the point of where I was questioning, gosh, is he taking this serious? And, you know, (laughs) a few K later, I didn't see you again and you won the race. But, um, man, all the best. Keep doing what you're doing. You're going to keep getting what you're getting. Awesome. Thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Jensi. Thanks from my side as well. It was a pleasure to catch up with you again. And it was great to see that you're doing fine. Family, little farm. That is so awesome. I'm happy for you, my friend. It's good. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Huge thanks to Ian for being our guest. Thanks for listening. And please give us a five-star review and share us with your friends. The show was a Velo News production in association with Shock Giraffe. The producer was Mark Payne. And this episode was edited by Tim Moza. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bobby and Jens and share your cycling stories with us. <laughs>